All right. Hey, I do want to say one thing on the whole, like, um, Russia-Ukraine thing. You know, I, I, I talked about it. Really the heart of what I wanted to share on Sunday was that as, as Christians, um, we, we don't want to live in fear. And we don't want to let these things, you know, Jesus said, right, in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discord, he said that one of the signs of the last days will be wars and rumors of wars. And I had someone question me on that today, like, rumors of wars, what does that mean? Like, if there's a war, there's a war. And I'm like, well, yeah, but, like, even now, there's a rumor that China is going to invade Taiwan or try to annex Taiwan. That's a rumor of war. A month ago, it was a rumor of whether, you know, Russia was going to, go into Ukraine or not. So there's wars and rumors of wars. It makes sense. But it's one of the signs of the end times. And then as I always do, is I highlight Ezekiel 37 and 38. Now, I want to be very clear. Um, most of the Calvary pastors in Calvary kind of, it's not a Calvary distinctive. It's not, you know, there are certain things within Calvary that's distinctive that you have to kind of party line or you can't be a Calvary chapel. This is not one of them, how you interpret Ezekiel 37 and 38. But I would say across the board, most of the Calvary Chapel pastors are kind of in line um, that 37 is, um, unequivocally, 37 is the fulfillment of Israel being regathered. It's, it's no doubt, right, that one's pretty clear, that, that they'll be scattered, what happened in AD 70, up to the year 110 in Masada, and the final group of, of, of Jews committed suicide on top of the mountain in Masada was the last remnant of Jews left in the land of Israel in about 110 and since then, they were scattered all over the world and didn't um, begin to come back to Israel until uh, after the 19, early 1900s in very small groups. And then in 1948, became a nation. Ezekiel 37 is a prophecy that details this in, in very detail, that they'll be scattered, they'll come back together, they'll be reborn as a nation. So if Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled in 1948, in our very eyes, before our very eyes, in our lifetime, for you old folks, um, this kid then 38 seemingly would be, would be the next thing and would be yet future, right? And so, again, I, I, I just would say that other people, some might disagree. You can study it for yourself and make your own opinion. But we're, we're of the strong opinion that Ezekiel 37 and, and 38 is in our life, 37 fulfilled before our eyes, 38 is next. And what happens in 38 is 10 nations come against Israel. One thing you can be 100% clear about is that 38 is not already fulfilled because Russia and Iran and Turkey have never attacked Israel in, in a group. It's never happened, and it's very clear who the nations are named in Ezekiel 30, 38. That, that there's, of those ten nations, they're all what are today Muslim nations, northern Africa, um, um, Muslim countries through that part of the world are going to come together in a coalition against Israel. But one of the things it says in Ezekiel 38 was what we call the Gog and Magog invasion again. Um, a good question about the timing of the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 is will it happen um, before the rapture, after the rapture, simultaneous to the rapture? And I, uh, Joel Rosenberg is probably the, one of the foremost leading scholars on the, the Gog and Magog war invasion and, and has written books about it and has studied it. And when you ask Joel Rosenberg this question, what is the timing of the Gog and Magog um, invasion in um, perspective to the rapture itself, he'll tell you, I don't know. The rapture could happen just before, it could happen in the middle of, simultaneous, just after, somewhere in that process. Um, but it's it's definitely in times rapture stuff. Okay, now all that to say this. I just kind of had to set the table that in Ezekiel 38, what it says is that God is going to put a hook in the jaw of, of Gog and Magog and draw them into Israel. So something is, is going to, um, you know, there's a hook that's going to be in the jaw 
of the, of the Russian leader. Now, Gog and Magog, if you don't know the context of that, one is um, a, a ruler or a czar of an area called Magog. So Gog is the ruler of Magog. So if it were today, Putin would be the Gog and Magog would be Russia or specifically Moscow um, in, 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 that, in that prophecy, the people of Moscow. So something will be a hook in his jaw that will draw him and he'll lead these other nations to war against Israel. Um, so, you know, we, we've looked at this, right, and, and we always look at geopolitical type of events and things and try to figure out what it is. Well, 15 years ago, Iran and Russia are enemies. Iran and Turkey don't, I mean, um, um, Iran and Russia, Turkey, these countries, none of them are friends or none of them will dare work together. But in, in, in the very short past, Iran and Russia have begun to work together, working together in Syria. Both are present in Syria right now, working together as um, uh, Russia is supporting, um, what's his name in Damascus? Um, President of Damascus of Syria. Not Erdogan, he's in Turkey. Oh, anyways, so he's supporting Assad, Bashar al-Assad. Um, he, he's, he's supporting Bashar al-Assad. You know, the United States was against Bashar al-Assad, and we were arming the rebels, and it was just impossible to figure out who was who and all that mess. We went through that a couple years ago. Um, but so now we have Russia and, and these countries aligning, which again is new, and it fits what the Bible says. So what is this hook that's in Russia's jaw? You know, some, some are saying that with the, um, the skirmish that is taking place now, and, and again, some of these pundits, and I don't know if pundits is the right word, scholars even, um, um, guys that study in times prophecy and teach it and do podcasts on all this stuff, like sometimes they sensationalize everything and everything is the thing. And, you know, one time they're going to get it right, you know, and so you just, you know, you don't know. But they're saying that, you know, Again, that the waters are stirred enough that they don't see it not being a thing. That this is this is the hook now in the water, Russia now in Ukraine, with all these other irons in the fire. That something through this that's going on, could Russia could close its mouth on that hook, and when and when the Lord pulls the pole and sets that hook, you know it's inevitable that it's it's going to it's going to result in the God made God invasion. It's going to result in the rapture. It's going to result in the kicking off of the, the, the tribulation, the Antichrist being revealed, those things are coming. Um, could the Lord carry another 20 years? Absolutely. 30 years? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if we're being, if we're being honest, you know, our pastor, Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, he was, he was adamant in 1980 the Lord was coming back. You know, he couldn't see the Lord carrying another 40 years. And the Lord did. Here we are in 2020, you know. So, the Lord could carry that long. He could carry till as long as He wants, you know, but as far as trying to line up the things in the Bible with what's happening around us, you know, we're, we're definitely living in, in unique times. So, yeah, things could settle down. Russia could go home. Ukraine could go back. Whether they end up winning the war in Ukraine, the Russians or Ukrainians defend themselves. I mean, some of the folks I've listened to have just feel like that, that, that Ukraine doesn't stand a chance, that Russia will ultimately... Um, get their way in Ukraine. I've heard others say, oh no, Ukraine's going to hold us up and they're going to hold them off. And again, who knows? But I think some of those that know the know pretty much feel like Russia's going to dominate this thing. Um, so, what is the hook in Russia's jaw? Now, are we looking at the times where, you know, something is, is drawing Russia towards 
And why, why, is, why is Russia and Ukraine anyway? Yeah, I mean, have you guys seen the water angle? Well, no, what happened was, and again, you guys, I, some of this stuff i got to be careful with, so don't quote me on all this stuff because the fake news is crazy. But the, the water angle is that, um, and this, a lot of these facts are true. When Russia um, annexed Crimea a couple years ago, however long that, that was ago, five years ago or something, and Russia controls Crimea, the water source that, that feeds Crimea, their farmlands and all that stuff, it's like the Colorado River. You know, it's the same thing in, in, in Uganda, right? The, the Nile River is the water source. It runs from Uganda all the way to out, outside of Egypt, but it crosses four countries. And every country above the one in the direction the, the water runs depends on that water. And they have dammed it up and stopped it, and they fight over who lets it go and how much water they get. Same thing the states do here over the Colorado River of the farmlands. But anyway, the river that supplies the farmlands and the water to Crimea is controlled inside of Ukraine. And they started letting less water out, and they were fighting over it. And then, and then Ukraine, a couple of years ago, just completely shut it off. And then Russia and Ukraine have been fighting over this water source into Crimea. The farmlands in, in Crimea are, are, are dwindling because they don't have the water. And so there's been a fight over the water. So that's one issue. Um, he's just evil. And he's, you know, it's a, war, it's a war of pride, many have said, you know. And, and, and one of the things we know, like, again, Joel Rosenberg, who I, I talk about a lot, he's, um, he's a... He's a He's a Jew who was on Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet, worked in the United States government for a while, has written a bunch. He got super famous when he started writing fictional novels that started coming true, and he'd write them from a, from a biblical, like, prophecy perspective. Well, he wrote a book that Russia would annex um, the Kremlin conspiracy a couple years ago, that Russia would annex three countries to its south, and they've already done Crimea, they're doing Ukraine now, and so he's pretty good at, like, predicting these things, and and, and then he tells it like in a, in a fictional story, but there's always a lot of truth in it. And then they come true and everybody's like, well, how did you know? But he reads his Bible, he studies, watches his stuff. And, but um, Joel, why did I bring him up? Because he was going to make a point. Oh, yeah, Joel, Joel has painted Putin as, you know, an imperialist in that he, 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 he envisions himself. Like Nebuchadnezzar was, not Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein was the same way. Saddam Hussein envisioned himself as a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar, something bigger than who he was, something in human history that was a reincarnate of a king of, that was of greatness. Well, in, in a way that Putin is, feels the same way, and Putin feels like he's a czar of Russia and that, and that, he, that he's destined to return Mother Russia to its, its one-time glory. Look at a map, or if you can, you could Google it, pretty simple, Russia like 1750. far as you can see. Everything on that side of the world is Russia. Mother Russia. All of it. All those Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, Bedakstan, all across the south, Ukraine, all the whole thing is Russia. USSR. And so he, he envisions that returning Mother Russia back to its former glory and the power of Russia and all those things. And so he does have that kind of bent, you know. So maybe, maybe that's part of the motivation for him. And no, no bones about it. He's evil. He's going to be used by Satan, and if if this kind of stuff does pan out, he's a puppet of Satan. And and if if again, if he's the one that invades Israel, that's obvious, right? That he's, he's demonically and, and evil in, in heart. So, 
you know, Vlad was here. When Vlad was here, I asked him about the Gog and Magog thing in Ezekiel 38. And so I asked him to teach on it. And now being Russian, and he's got to say, right, that at the time he's still the pastor at Nizhny Novgorod. And he's teaching our men's group that Sunday night. He taught for me Sunday morning. We were going to have him back. He was going to teach the men's group Sunday night. And so that was the assignment I gave him. And so he did a bunch of research, like tons of research. Um, you know, and I think, you know, being Russian and saying, oh, Russia is, is, is who Ezekiel 37, 38 is talking about. Ezekiel 38 is talking about. And, and he came in and he showed us in the language and he showed us in the history how unequivocally that Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, is Moscow and Russia and the Tsar of Russia. And he showed us in the language and, you know, just unembarrassed, unashamedly. This is what the Word of God says. And so um, they, they will definitely be a part of that, that yet future, maybe soon, invasion. So one of the things he explained at the time, though, was that, um, you know, Russia's problem always is their economy, right? Russia doesn't have a very strong economy. So one of their, their, their largest exports, I mean, not Russia's largest export is? Not oil. <laughs> it's, it's natural gas. They, they, they have a pipeline to Europe, and they supply Europe, a, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of the countries, Germany, a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of the European countries, Western European countries, France, all those countries, rely on Russia for their natural gas. that heats their homes, that cooks their food, that, um, you know, that, that, that so, and, and I think it was, I don't know what year it was, we can look it up, but um, in Israel, they discovered the largest deposit of natural gas in the world, ten times what Russia has so big that it's called the Leviathan, they call it, discovery in Russia, and, or, I'm sorry, in, in Israel, so they have it, they've been working on it since then, refining and doing things, but if they started competing with Russia and selling, if they ever took over, they, they probably could because of the amount they have, they could probably sell it cheaper, it's Israel, they could probably produce it and, and, and ship it cheaper and everything because they just could do that, but if they did that and they started competing for the European market, that, that could be a hook in his jaw that would draw him into Israel, but that's just a little kind of um, tidbit. It's probably going to be a lot bigger issue than that, but that's a possibility. So. All right. Did I say Nehemiah chapter 3? All right, you guys have your Bibles? You guys bear with me tonight. I, I, I did what I do only the first Wednesday of the month. I ate before I preached. So I normally don't. That's partially why I'm fat, and then I eat at 10 o'clock at night when I leave here. Drive through Taco Bell and get a couple of tacos on the way home. I'm starving. So I haven't eaten anything all day. That's not true. I want a hot body, but I love tacos too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no spittles on my tacos. All right, let's get a running start really quickly. So, um, we've been walking through the gates. Maybe we can get a picture of the gates up on stage, and then we'll we'll catch it up. We're going to be in verse 26. If you're looking where to land, your eyes. And so we have um, Nehemiah has returned. The city of Jerusalem has been in ruins for 150 years from the time Nebuchadnezzar conquered it until the time Nehemiah is back. Now, before Nehemiah, do you remember Zerubbabel and Ezra? They went back. Zerubbabel began to rebuild first the temple. Um, Ezra came back and began to rebuild the services and the spiritual aspect of, of, of Israel and Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah, years later, is called back to rebuild the gates, specifically the walls. They started in the north. We started with that, the Sheep Gate, chapter 3, verse 1. We come around counterclockwise 
in order. We've come all the way to the Watergate 326. That's where we are today. Um, depending on how our time goes, we may try to cover the Watergate and Horsegate today. Um, so we've been um, spending lots of time in this chapter going through each of them kind of topically with what the different gates represent and how we've come to that conclusion. And so I've already told you guys, disclaimer, this is not my Bible study. I stole this from somebody else. This is, um, But it's very good, and so give it my own little twist. But here we go. So the water gate, um, again, do you remember last week we saw outside of between, oh, it's actually above the water gate is the Gihon Springs. Now, the Gihon Springs is where the water would, um, all the water for the city would come from the Gihon Springs. It was the only source of water for the city of Israel, We talked for the city of Jerusalem. Um, we talked about last week, um, I think we have a slide, if, if um, Hezekiah's tunnel, remember Hezekiah's tunnel? Came from the Gihon Springs, he built that tunnel 750 yards like this through bedrock to, to bring the water from the, the Gihon Springs, that's not the one, from the Gihon Springs into the Pool of Siloam where um, um, Hezekiah did that about 700 years before Christ. So he was... Um, they brought the, the water into the city for the first time. We get to walk through it when we go in Israel. Nowadays, it's somewhat abandoned, although there's water that runs in it, but it's not their water source anymore. And you get to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel when you go there. But before that, all of the water of the city, there we go, there it is, the Gihon Springs, it would come to the Pool of Siloam. So it was this underground tunnel that would go from the only water source in Israel. Now, most, most cities, major cities, are built around a water source how we build our cities, right? And it's what makes cities thrive. That's why Egypt thrived for so many years because of the great rivers that, that were um, in Egypt and all the cities of the world. But here we have, so above the water gate, so you would come out the water gate, get buckets of water and go through. Now, I want to tell you a story. There was a group of people in Israel who were responsible for bringing the water. Um, there were water carriers in the city. Really wild story. You have to like... Hardcore Bible trivia for any of guess this one. I'll give you guys a crack at it. Anybody who was responsible in Israel for getting the water through history? you got to go back to Joshua. And we did study Joshua right here from this pulpit. But if you would, go back with me real quick to Joshua. We're going to see a story in chapter 8. Now, I, I, rather than you read the whole story to you in Joshua, I'm sorry, 9, chapter 9. Oh, it says it right on the top. Don't even read it because it gives it away. All right, it was the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites. Remember the story of the Gibeonites? You can thumb through Joshua 9, but I'll try to speed it up and just read a couple verses. But in, um, when, when, when Joshua and the nation of Israel, when they um, crossed over the, the Jordan River into what is modern-day Israel, they crossed over in the area of Jericho, um, where is modern-day Jericho. And then they began to conquer. What was in the land of this modern-day Israel today? The Canaanites. It was called the land, that's why they call it Canaan, or the land of the Canaanites, or Canaan is oftentimes what, what the land of Israel is called. And God said, do not make any deals with the Canaanites. Don't make any pacts with them. Don't make any treaties with them. What were they supposed to do? I had to kill them all. All of them. They were, call, they were called to kill them all. So all the women, children, they had, there was genocide upon the Canaanites was, was the command of God as they went into Jerusalem. So they go in, and, and as you study Joshua, the 17 chapters of Joshua are just bloody. They really are. As you read through the history of Israel and Joshua and the, and the soldiers as they're conquering and they're fighting different Canaanites and giants in the land and, um, you know, lots of folks. Well, 
the Gibeonites realized that they were going to be conquered and there was going to be no mercy. So they, they, they tattered their clothes, they threw dust on their face, and they rattled their hair, and they, um, they, they ripped their sandals, and they wore them like this until they looked worn. They, they took wineskins that had been thrown out and were old. They put them on like they had been carrying them for a long time. And they got moldy bread, and they brought it with them. And they came into Israel, and they just said, we are from a far, far land, and we, we, we don't want any trouble. We heard you guys were here. We traveled all this way to come and make a peace treaty with you. And so what did Joshua and the people of Israel do? They believed them. It says that they, they inquired of them. It says that they, um, they even, oh, you got, it was too good to be true. It says that they, 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 they took of their provisions, which means they tasted the moldy bread to see if it was really moldy. And that's why earlier I mentioned the moldy bread. They ate the moldy bread. They, they checked the wineskins that were old and, and, and nasty, and they drank the wine, and they ate the bread. And it says, but they did not inquire of the Lord. They ate the bread. Verse, 20, uh, verse 14, here, uh, 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 Joshua 9. That's a good verse in your Bible. Read that one. The men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And they didn't pray. And so they made a deal with the Gibeonites that they wouldn't harm them. And then they, um, they found out very quickly that the Gibeonites were lying, that they were this Canaanite group that was very close to Jerusalem, living almost inside of what would be the city um, of Jerusalem as they came through. And then, and then the people were angry and they wanted to kill the Gibeonites. And Joshua came over and he said, no. He said, you may, even though they were dishonest, even though they lied on their end, you made a deal with them and you're going to keep it. And he said, besides, he said, you didn't pray. You ate their moldy bread, but you didn't pray. And so you will, you will keep this peace treaty with the Gibeonites. And that's what happened. And then look what, look what Joshua did. Chapter 9, verse 27. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters. And what? Somebody. Water carriers for the congregation and for the altar, the Lord, in the place which he would choose even to this day. So for 600 years, from this time, about 1,300 years before Christ, until Hezekiah built the Hezekiah's tunnel, the Gibeonites in Israel, well, they're not even Jews, they're Canaanites, were water carriers. And it was their job to go out the water gate and get the water and carry it in. But I love that story. It's just a funny story. I love how Joshua was like, you didn't pray. You ate their moldy bread, but you didn't pray. So, just another, uh, you know, reminder to us, right? And the Bible's full of this. When we study the life of King David, we spend a lot of time studying the life of King David. One of the things that you see through the life of David over and over and over and over again, the strength of King David was that he inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. Easy decisions. Everybody knew the answer. He didn't make the decision. He stopped and he inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. For you as a Christ follower, I mean, something that you can put in your bag right now and will change your life is to be a person who seeks God for the decisions and the answers that you make in your life, even when they seem obvious. It's not rocket science. It's not crawling through ashes on your knees and ripping and cutting and whipping yourself. It's pausing for five seconds, five minutes of your life, acknowledging the Lord, praying, sometimes waiting for an answer. You know, if you don't know the will of God, 
that doesn't mean move forward. Sometimes that means wait. It means you're, just wait until God speaks to your heart and continue to seek Him. The Bible says keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking, keep inquiring. Lydia, when she teaches this message, she says like Nemo, just keep on swimming, keep on swimming. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And there's a reason because God is raising kids. And it's not because He's a tyrant and He just wants you to beg Him. Yeah, but what's happening in the process is of you asking and, and pleading and praying and seeking and listening is you're building relationship with Him. You're spending time with Him. He's raising kids. He's hearing your heart. He's, he's able to share His heart with you. And again, I think one of the biggest errors we make in prayer and in our prayer ministries and our prayer lives is that we think that prayer is only about what we say to God. And we're missing it. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a two-sided conversation. And in our prayer life and in our prayer ministry, if we're not devoted or focused as much as we are to hear the voice of God, as we are for Him to hear our voice, like, you know, the silly thing is, the Bible says, God says, I know what you need before you even ask. So all the words you spend hoping you hear your voice, like, He's like, yeah, I heard it. But anyways, I'm teasing. He's not telling you not to say it. He wants you. He wants you to pray. He does love it. He does love spending time with you. He wants to hear your voice. He wants you to pray. He tells us over and over in His Word, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking, keep praying. But make sure that as a discipline of prayer that we, we, we listen. And we know, right? This is, this is yesterday's message, right? Prayer is not how we get our will done on, the, on, on earth. Prayer is not how we get God to do what we want Him to do in our lives. It's not, it's not what prayer is for. The purpose of prayer is to conform us into His will, into His image, into what He wants to happen in our lives. And, and always the truth is the same, right, in prayer. And, you know, I hear people bag on this stuff, and they're like, oh, you got to pray with faith, and you got to... But you know what? Nonsense. Because Jesus taught us how to pray, and Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, the very essence of prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So ask for whatever you want. Lord, give me that Porsche, Lord. Give me a Mercedes. I've got enough faith, Jesus. Give me two. And if you don't want yours, you just give me your keys. Because i got faith enough for two of them. But nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. If those guys would finish with that, okay, I could dig it. Then they could ask for whatever they want. It's cool. You're good. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. When we get ourselves in trouble is when we begin to... You know, and this is difficult. I, I you know, it, I don't know, because it kind of goes circular for me. Because it's like, there are times, like, if it's healing, somebody's healing. Like, I, I'm praying, I want God to heal this person. And I'm praying, Lord, heal him in Jesus' name. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will. It almost kind of takes the gusto sometimes out of wanting to really be on fire in prayer. But God still says, come boldly, right? He says, come boldly to the throne of God of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. And we're empowered to ask for things. And, you know, um, um, Alistair Begg's new book, Pray Big, that's the idea of it. Alistair Begg's one of the greatest Bible teachers on the planet. And his new book and his vision is Pray Big. And so we're supposed to pray big. We're supposed to ask for big things. We're supposed to come boldly. We're supposed to come in faith. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. You know, like, you know, I get, I get you guys ask me to pray for you sometimes. And it's like, Oh, I don't know. I, I really want this new job. And, you know, like, I, don't, I, I try to trick you guys. Maybe you catch me, maybe you don't. I don't know. But I'm not like, Lord, give them the job they're asking for, Lord. I'm like, Lord, if this is what you want for them, let it happen. But if it's not, Lord, don't give them that job. 
And people come in, they're like, oh, it's so bad. Will you pray for me? I got fired from work. I'm like, Lord, bless us. They got fired at work. Your, your will was done. Lord. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I got fired. Like, yeah, God's got something better for you, you know? Like, yeah, like, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. All right. It's not about prayer. It's supposed to be about the word of God. All right. So, the water gate. So, the Gibeonites, um, they didn't pray. They ate the moldy bread. <laughs> Joshua's like, you fools! You didn't pray, you ate their moldy bread! What are you talking about? Can you imagine it? Alright, yeah, they're from far away. Let's make a deal with them. None of them thought, hey, let's pray. Hey, check it out. Verse 26, Nehemiah chapter 3 says, Moreover, the Nethanim who dwelt in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east on the, on the projecting tower and after them, the Tekanites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So in verse 26, I'll tell you in 27, if you look through the first thing you will notice or not notice about the water gate, of all the other nine gates listed here, listen, there is no repair to the water gate. When, when you read what the context, what it's saying here is they made repairs up to the gate, and they got on the other side of the gate and they did some work. And every other gate, they repaired the bars, they repaired the hinges, they did something, they hung them, they did this. And there's some kind of mention of the repair on the actual gate. But here, um, in the water gate, it's the only one where no repairs were made on the actual water gate. Right? And again, you can read through that technicality or not, but it's not there. You don't see what you see with the other gates where they made repair to the gate. Now, why? Because the water gate represents the Word of God. And we have lots of um, analogies, lots of types in the Bible um, where water represents the Word of God. We talked about last week that water can also represent in your Bibles the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, out of your life will flow torrents of living water, describing the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, in the marriage chapter, in our marriage verses, it says to wash her, he will wash her with the water of the Word. And so the water in Ephesians 5 in multiple places is the Word of God. In other places, we see um, where you, you bathe in it. One pastor said, describing the two, which I don't know if this is a biblical consistency 100% of the time, but many times when you see the word, the word water um, and you're bathing in it, it represents the Word of God. And when you're drinking it, it represents the Holy Spirit. But we see that. And water is that, that source. We drink it. We bathe in it. And it does represent both the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, which makes sense that it's kind of interchangeable. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's just look at it. In verse number 26 of Ephesians 5. All right, let's start in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved, and also as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he, now if you have a new King James, King James, that second word in your sentence in verse 26 is capitalized. So, this is talking about, in a practical sense, that you husbands are to wash your wives in the water of the Word. That means you're to be the spiritual leader of your home. You're to lead Bible studies in your home, to share the Word of God with your wife, to be in the Word of God with your wife. It's a direction from the Word of God. But I think there's a dual um, fulfillment here because this is a capital H here in verse number 26. So, this is talking about something that Jesus is going to do for you, the bride of Christ, which is you men and you women. And it says that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her 
with the washing of water by the Word. So we looked at, I think, last week, how may a young man cleanse his ways when we're talking about sin. In Psalm 119, how may a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 9 and 10, we highlighted that last week. But we see where the word of God is, is a cleansing force. In Psalm 150, not 150, in Psalm 138, it says that your word is, a verse we probably will know when I quote it right, your word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. The word of God is to guide us and lead us. Now, for us, the we, you know, we have to teach the Word as inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God in its original context. It's, it's central to who we are here in our church, here at Calvary Chapel, that we teach the Word of God in its historical context and that it's, it's 100% infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, um, i got to tell you a story because I, I, I've had um, some people here, and, and you know, I want to be careful how I say this, but... They said to me, I'm just going to tell the truth. That's the best way to do it. They said to me, after being in our church for a little bit and getting for the first time chapter by chapter, verse by verse teaching through the Word in its historical context, they said, we were starving and we didn't know it. They were involved in churches, involved in worship, and were getting the Word of God. And then they would say to me, but we were starving and we we didn't even know it. And, And here's the difference. And it's a subtle difference. But... It is, it is there. We had a, a, some, some good friend of ours here in this church who were here for a while. They had a Calvary background before they got to us. And they just moved to South Carolina. And they got involved in a different church. And, and we're doing it for a while. We're loving it. The worship was off the hook. The whole experience was really kind of vibe and high, high energy and really fun. And, and they were loving it for a season. And the, the husband, my friend, he said to me, after about six months, he just said, man, I'm just starving. And they went back to this small, and this is a big multi-thousand member church with the lights and the smoke and the, and the things going on. And, the, and, it, was, and it, was, it was exciting. And, uh, and they, they were really loving it for a while. And the daughter, the teenage daughter, was crazy in love with this church. It was so fun. Worship was off the hook. The experience was great. But he just said, and, and they did it for a while. I, I was surprised he was even doing it in the beginning. He was sending me the messages like, man, check this one out. This is fire, you know, and. Um, and then after about six months, they went back to this church, about ten people, and they said, yeah, the worship's not good, and but the preacher's teaching the Word, and we're, we're getting steaks on Sunday, and we prefer that now. And you know, they realize, anyway, it's just for them, and maybe not for everybody. You know, People love that style. There's a reason why God allows it, and God has it. But when, when you get an appetite for the Word of God, so let me give you an example. There was a message that he sent me from this church, and it, the message was the parable of the wheat and the tares. So that's in the parable that Jesus taught. And I was like, oh, sweet. Message right out of the Word of God. He's teaching the Word. So I listened to the message, and the message went something like this. And I'm no preacher, but like that. Well, I pretend. Like when I'm in the shower, you guys are singing songs. I'm pretending to be one of those preachers. But um, So it was like, in, in the parable, the wheat and the tares. Like the context is that, that wheat is a, is a, not wheat, the tares is a wheat, is a, a weed, that looks just like the wheat. Wheat is how we get our bread, our food. And tares grow in the middle of the, of the pasture, middle of the farm. That they grow together. And they look pretty much similar. But one's a wheat, one's a weed, and one's the food. And, and Jesus, so one's good and one's bad, right? So he, so he talks about the wheat, and the wheat is good. 
and, and God uses good things in your life, and God blesses us, and he goes through verses, or not really verses, he goes through ideas where God uses blessing in your life to, 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 to grow you as children. And then the wheat also in the same field grows, and it's a wheat, and it's bad, right? We can all agree it's bad. And, and that sometimes Jesus said you're going to go through trials in your life, and that bad things, God allows bad things in your life still. It's still God. And sometimes it's good things, and sometimes it's bad things. And then, and then about three-quarters of the way through the message, the worship team comes back up, and the piano starts going, da, 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 and the smoke starts coming up. And, and then he goes, um, so what is it that God uses in your life? Is it the, is it the wheat or the tares? And then the piano plays, bum, 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 bum. And then the smoke goes, and he says, it's both! And then the, the crowd jumps up, and everybody, I'm serious, the crowd all jumps up at the crescendo, and they're fired up, and, and it's both. God uses good things in your life, and God uses bad things in your life. Now, 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 the message in itself, is it true? Is it biblically true? Come on, y'all. I'm going to send you over to his church if you don't got this stuff. Is it biblically true what I just shared? Yes. God uses good things in your life, and God uses bad things in your life. You're going to go through difficult things, and you're going to receive blessings from the Lord, and God is in them both. Is that what the parable is teaching? No. Not even close. Not, not even close. It is not the context of what the parable is meant in its historical context. That's not the case. That's just not it. It's a good message. It feels good. It's true even. But it's not teaching the Word of God. The wheat and the tares is a parable that in the church, you're going to have bad people in the church. But listen, if we as church folks, if we're trying to figure out which one of you is a wheat, we talked about this last week, a couple weeks ago. My heart was broken over a situation. It was like, sometimes we people that we see every week that come to church, we don't know that they're necessarily where they are spiritually. We don't know if they're born again, if they've really surrendered their heart and life to the Lord. We love them and we serve them, but, within it, but we're not to try to go through the church and rip out the bad apples, is what Jesus was talking about. Because if you do that in your church, you're going to rip the wheat when you're trying to rip out the tares. And Jesus said, don't do it. Let the wheat and the tares grow together. Love them all, and I will judge them. And when the time comes, I'm going to bring the sickle. And I'm going to, do, I'm going to cut the, wheat, the, the tares away and, heart, and get the wheat together and, and gather it into my barn. So that's the biblical context. We had this woman approach me. She had this questionnaire, this 20-page questionnaire. And she, she was developing a website here in Utah, um, and she was telling people whether churches were good or bad. And she said, you know, there's so many churches out there, and there's so many Christians, specifically Christian churches. And she said, but I'm going to do the research for you. I'm going to go check out all these churches, and then you can come to my website, and you can know which churches in the valley are good, um, Salt Lake Valley, and she included us, and, and which churches are bad. And so I... I I knew, and then anything you, you print, everything in text, she's going to publish it all for you. And she did all that stuff for me. And I was really careful in the beginning. I, did, I was like, I would talk to her on the phone because she couldn't publish that. But anything I typed, like, she was reaching out to me through Messenger and this questionnaire. And then was like weeks into this, going back and forth with her a little bit and checking out her website and seeing what she had said about other churches. And finally, I was like, I hope she prints all this stuff. And I just went for, like, pages of just typing on Messenger all this stuff to her. And she did. Of course, she published it all. But... Um, I told her this. I told her this premise. I said, listen, you're trying to make a ministry out of doing exactly what Jesus said not to do. 
How can you be blessed when you're trying to you're trying to separate the wheat from the tares? And if you're making a ministry of attacking other ministries, I said you're wasting your time. You're doing exactly what Jesus said not to do. And don't you think your time would be much better spent trying to do something else, reach lost people, love people where they are, feed homeless, do something? Like, like you can be doing something in the positive. And I get it that you want to, you have a heart that wants to protect people from, you know, false false teachers. I get it. Like we're called to do that. We're called to be watchmen on the wall. We're called to set an alarm. Okay, I get it. But. Anyway, you can't make a ministry out of doing exactly what Jesus said not to do. And, and, in, and in the process, I said, all you're doing is hurting these churches because your criteria in the first place is, she got her criteria from some weird pastor. And he was weird. And she was coming out of the church trying to protect other people from weirdness. And one of the criteria was, if your church passed an offering bag, you were going to fail bad her, her, her thing. Because her pastor said, you, it's unbiblical or whatever to pass the bag. Now, you can have a, bo- a box like we have, but the, and at the time, we were passing a bag. We don't pass the bag anymore because she scared me. No, heck no. Just kidding. Just kidding. That is not true at all. She, she can kick rocks, really, honestly. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, I'm not, I'm not worried about it, honestly. Um, we stopped during coronavirus and we just, this has worked since and we just haven't passed. So we haven't started it back up. That's why we don't pass a bag. All right. It's 830. Dang it. Can you guys give me a few more minutes? I do want to finish this. A couple of things. Let's go. Um, let's go. Hey, turn to Nehemiah chapter eight. I think this is really cool. It's in the book of Nehemiah, and um, we're talking about the Word of God. I, I do want to share a few things. Um, so just hang out for a few minutes. Um, verse number one in Nehemiah eight. You guys there? A couple pages over. It says now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of what gate? The water gate. And this is how we make it the Word of God. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the what? The Bible of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, now we have Ezra, remember Ezra, we studied him, brought the law before the assembly. And who was in the assembly? Men and women and all who could hear, hear with understanding. So who was not in the assembly? Those who could not hear with understanding. So as I'm preaching tonight, you guys have kids. Which age could your kids understand what was happening in here tonight? And which ones could they not? So you guys could decide. I don't know. My daughter's five. She definitely wouldn't have. She'd be going nuts in here, not understanding a word or caring about a word I was saying. We fast forward to 10. I don't know that the 10 year olds would really be digging what I was saying. Maybe 13, 14 could start to get with it. But it says all those who could have understanding. So guess where the where the kids were who were less understanding. Whatever age you want that to be, I don't care. You know, let, let's not split hairs over that. You, you make it whatever you think. Just like when people ask me, how old do you have to be to be baptized? The answer is when they can understand why they're being baptized and it's something that, be, that they can know what, what it's about intellectually and spiritually, then we'll baptize it. There's no age. So that's what was going on here. So they had um, children's ministry going on somewhere else where the kids were taught at an age-appropriate level just like we do in our churches today. It's biblical. It's, it's, it's happened right here. This, this chapter right here is so good. DMI chapter 8. Review it tonight when you get home. Chapter 8, since you didn't get any other part of the word tonight. You could do chapter 8, 1 through whatever. Just read through the chapter and meditate on it a little bit. So good. 
But then it says the same thing repeated in verse number 3. Look at verse number 3. Then he read from it, and he opened the square that was in front of the water gate. Which gate? Water gate. We're talking about the word. From morning until midday. Anybody know how long that was from morning to midday? A Jewish day started at 6 a.m. and it ended at 6 p.m. So from morning to 6 a.m. to midday is noon. You only got nothing to complain about because I am going over five minutes. Six hours they read the Bible to them. And not only did they read the Bible, look, and this is biblical. And, and there was a function of, of those who do it. And it says, um, from morning to midday, before the men and women again repeated, and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of law, so as, as it described, stood on a platform. Now, he didn't stand on a platform because he was more important than people that were listening. He stood on a platform because it was practical. Because there was a, people could see him, so people could hear him. It had nothing to do with being elevated above or better than nonsense. The platform was practical. That's what it's saying here, of wood. Wood. No, I'm just kidding. You can't have a pepper of anything else. No, I'm just kidding. Which they had made for the purpose. And besides him, at his right hand stood a bunch of people. And that's why in churches today, we don't do it. You guys ever seen one of those churches where the pastor's preaching and all the elders sit in chairs along the sides? Yeah. Well, that's what was going on here. Okay, so it's biblical. God bless them. We're not mad at them. I'll be careful what I say. Okay. And then it says in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Many Calvary chapels do this today. If you go to Jack Hibbs' church, if you went to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck, they have a thing that's called responsive reading. And in the beginning of every service, whatever they're teaching, everybody in the congregation gets their Bibles, and they stand up, and the pastor reads the odd number verses, and the congregation reads the even number responsive reading, and this is where it comes from. They all stood up and they read the word. And Ezra blessed the Lord, great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. It's biblical to shout me down. Okay, so if you say Amen and whatever you say, it's biblical. While lifting up their hands. Okay, that's not something weird Pentecostal freaks do, Jesus freaks. That's what Bible people do. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then another group of people helped Verse 7, the bottom part, helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they, they stood together, and what was the purpose of reading it? In the verse 7? To help the people understand. So they got together, and they had different people that would read it, and they would study it together, and they would help each other understand it. Very biblical, very New Testament, Old Testament, God's plan, all the way through. Amen? We had this, um, we're going to close with this, and I didn't even finish it, but I'm just out of time. But we're going to have to pick up in the water gate next week because I can't let this go. You guys, I didn't even get to the Psalms progression. I didn't get to all the New Testament stuff. Remind me not to give a sermon before the sermon next week, but we'll definitely finish two or three next week, I promise. Oh, actually, we won't be here next week. In two weeks, and then I'll get to prepare for this message five times. That's That's why I couldn't finish it. I prepared for it so many times. We, we had this, uh, I was a children's pastor before I got here. Uh, I've been here almost nine years now, but my entire adult life, I never got a promotion. I got hired in June of 1998 um, as the children's pastor at, at Joshua Springs Calvary Chapel. And when they, when they got rid of me in 2013, I was in that same position as a children's pastor. I had a million other things I did by then, but I was still overseeing all the children's ministry and I had about 100 and 
hundred volunteers uh, on the children's ministry staff and about twelve paid paid staff that I oversaw. But we had in the early days we had this family and they were bringing their their young people into the sanctuary, and so as the children's pastor I had to deal with this family and so I was telling them that we have age-appropriate classes. I was telling them what we do, just like I explained here out of Nehemiah. And, and this guy was just adamant that the right way to do it was that everybody should meet together. And in the book of Acts, you see that. In the book of Acts, they all met together, it says, as they, as they worshiped the Lord. And so he was quoting the book of Acts to me. He was saying, the early church, they all met together, and, and you guys are, you know, not doing it right. And I was like, I don't say I'm still young and green. And so, of course, I go to... Um, our our uh, romaine, our, our our romaine is Pastor Bob Wagner. Many of you guys have met Pastor Bob, but he was the guy that that handled with all the troubled problems in the church. Pastor Darrell's called him for years the smartest man in Yucca Valley, and he really is super super sharp. And so I say, Bob, I need your help. We're gonna. I said I've asked these people to come into a meeting because they refuse to. Their kids are causing distraction in the service, and they're refusing to keep them out. So the right way to do it, it's biblical. And, so anyways, we go to this meeting on Sunday, and Pastor Bob sits in with me, and this guy starts explaining why he's going to stay in the sanctuary with his kids, because the early church did it. And, and Pastor Bob looks at this guy, and he says, well, the early church also sold everything they had and gave it to the church. And the meeting was over. <laughs> that was it. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> that was it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And we, we pray, Lord, for uh, just for your word, Lord, for the wisdom of your word, Lord. And help us, Lord, to be a just a Bible-centered, Jesus-centered people, Lord. And we're not Father, Son, and Holy Word. We, we're Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also are filled and want to be filled. And we want to see the Spirit of God move in our services, in our heart, in our life. We want to be gifted. We want to flow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Lord. We want to prophesy and speak in tongues and give words of wisdom and faith and see people healed in our services, Father. And every move and every work of the Spirit. And we also want to understand the Word, Lord, in its context. And so, Father, we thank You. And, and Lord, help us to fall in love with You, Jesus. Fall in love with Your Word. To know You intimately. And, and, and Lord, through the Word of God. And we thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name.